you're listening to the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Welcome to Episode 2 of the Fusion Patrol Podcast. This week, we're still on our series of special Doctor Who episodes as we work our way through the new series of Doctor Who. This week, we'll be reviewing the episode Flesh and Stone, which is the second part of a two-part story. A couple quick notes before we get the episode going. Last week's podcast was about twice as long as we wanted it to be. In the future, we'll be doing our best to bring the episodes in at 30 minutes or less. Second, we've begun to get a little bit of feedback, but we'd love to get more. You can contact us by email at feedback at fusionpatrol.com. And you can also find us on Twitter at Fusion Patrol. And that's all one word. Good evening, Ben. How are you tonight? Oh, hello, Eugene. Doing quite well. I uh, hope you're doing well, too. Yep, I sure am. Okay, well, before we go any further... I would like to make a little disclaimer for all of your listeners out there. Uh, Eugene and I have a slight uh, advantage in that we're seeing some of these episodes before many people that are catching it on BBC America. So there might be a few spoilers as we discuss it in the podcast. So my suggestion would be if you don't want any spoilers, don't listen. That's about it. So Eugene – how about giving us a, uh, a brief synopsis on this latest Doctor Who episode? In Flesh and Stone, the Doctor and the gang escape the Angels by making their way into the wrecked starship Byzantium. As the Angels pursue them through the ship, it becomes clear Amy will soon die because of the Angels inside of her. Only shutting her eyes and keeping them shut will keep her alive. The crack from Amy's bedroom puts in an appearance on the Byzantium, and it becomes clear that not only are the angels using the time energy from the crack to revive themselves, but that the crack itself is a far bigger threat than the angels. Well, Ben, um, what are your uh, impressions of the episode? Uh, well, I would have to say that as part uh, as a part two episode, it clearly lived up to uh, its predecessor. Uh, I've noticed in the past whenever whenever Russell T. Davies has done two-part episodes. And I don't want to turn this into a Russell bashing bit, but uh, his second parts have always fallen flat. I didn't get that with this particular episode. I thought the story was particularly strong, and uh, at times it got downright creepy. Uh, Stephen Moffat was able to kind of play, at least for me, be able to play on some on some old childhood fears and. It really made for a very, very suspenseful, suspenseful episode and uh, opened up some new questions where I didn't expect to have any. So I thought, I thought it was a very strong episode. I liked it a great deal. Oh, yeah. It, it opened up a lot of questions, that's for sure. Well, I, I thought it was – and I hate to use the word brilliant, but I, I, I really did. I mean, my definition of what, uh, what is a what's brilliant entertainment uh, is just that. It's a program – that entertains me all the way through and doesn't do something so stupid or so out of place or whatnot that it that it breaks the spell. And so this episode held the spell. And in, in fact, when I watched it, I put the first part on and watched it first, then watched this one right after it. So I did the whole thing in one go. 
Um, it's the first time I let my kids watch it. They literally had taken all of the uh, the sofa parasites, or the, the cushions, and they had stacked them up, and Michelle just had one eye poking out so that she could watch, but, it, it, you know, it, it, it held them quiet, and um, it, it was great. I mean, I loved the pacing, I loved the, the it, it wasn't, it wasn't too fast, it, but it held it, the menace, all the way through the episode. And although it did throw a few continuity wonks in there, um, it was, uh, I, I, really, I really thought it was top-notch. I, I can't think of a better Doctor Who episode in the new series. And I mean all, all of them since Christopher Eccleston. I, I've actually heard some feedback of people who thought it was terrible, but, you know, for me entertainment that's what it had to be and it- i can't imagine why anybody would not like uh, the, that particular episode uh it, it was everything that you just described it had some and this goes back to what we said last week it had some really fantastic pacing steven was able to write a story that at no time did it ever feel rushed uh, i never felt like i was being moved from plot point to plot point at either too slow a pace that i would lose interest or at such an accelerated pace that the story then lost its integrity. I really liked the way it was stretched out at a ra- in a really very strong manner. And for him to maintain that, Stephen Moffat has managed to recapture the old essence of the old classic Doctor Who's, uh, the Tom Bakers and the Pertwees and the Davisons, and able to craft these excellent episodes with these fantastic cliffhangers at what would have been the end of that week's episode, uh, for anybody that remembers the old 30-minute or 20-some-odd or minute episode. And he was able to maintain that from part one to part two. I would like to try, you know, watch both parts back-to-back just to get that sense, but it, it held my attention all the way through and at no point did I ever felt uh, that I was let down. Let's uh, let's talk about the uh, the angels themselves. Um, I also rewatched Blink, which is the episode that first introduced the Weeping Angels back when David Tennant was a doctor. There's been a lot of chatter, and and rightly so, that the angels are behaving very differently than they did in the original. Uh, in the original, for those who, who may not know it, the angels have this quantum lock phenomena where if anyone is observing them, then they simply can't move. It's not that they don't want to move. It's that they physically can't. And this is, uh, you know, a playoff of uh, 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 quantum wave collapse where, you know, once something's been observed, then its behavior is locked down. But when it's not observed, it does it can be doing multiple things. And, and also in that, they, they didn't kill people exactly. They launched them back into time, and then they fed off the potential time energy of, the, of them living them li- their lives in the past. Now, they're snapping people's necks. And they're starving. You'd think they'd throw the people back in time and eat their energy, if you know, even if it's just a light snack. So it's very strange. And I'm... Um, you know, they have the sequence where Amy has her eyes closed and the doctor is telling her, you know, you've got to walk through the angels as if you can see them. So they'll, you know, think you can see and they won't move. It's like, well, that's not what what I got out of it. And, um, you know, so I thought it was a function of them being truly observed, not a function of them wanting to be um, 
or thinking that they were being observed. Yeah, that's that's kind of strange. And if you tur- if they really did turn into a rock, then how would they ever think that they weren't being observed to get out of the state? But it it, it just didn't it didn't it didn't make a whole lot of sense uh, if you tried to take the other as canon. And the other thing is is that they were really being mean. I mean, they were terrifying Amy. I think they were snapping people's necks to terrify people. I think that was a, I think that's the reason that they were doing it. I think it was not that they had another purpose, that they were trying to instill uh, emotion. They were trying to piss off the doctor. I, I was about to say end. that. Yeah. Everything there seemed to me an intent to piss off the doctor. I, we, we could go into that, but I think it had something to do with a crack. I think somehow the doctor being emotionally charged up, that they felt that that would accelerate the crack so that they could get the get the time energy out of it. Well, you you, you brought up a, a really good point. I, I had forgotten about the whole bit with the angels thinking that as as long as they think they're being observed, it it sort of locks them down. Now, and you're right. It it sort of it sort of flies in the face of everything that we did learn about them in blink in terms of what immobilizes them. And if I were just to look at that one cold hard fact all by itself, I would find it to be a very disappointing uh, story element. However, this goes back to what I was saying just a few moments ago. The storytelling, the trying to push the emotional buttons, and I'm not talking about the angels trying to push buttons, but Stephen Moffat trying to push our buttons. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole idea of trying to get, you know, try to put you, just put yourself in Amy's position. Here she is. She's trapped being uh, surrounded by the angels, and she has to find a way to get to the doctor with her eyes closed. She has no idea where she's going. She can only do it by ear. This is a terrifying thing, and it was told so well that I, and, you know, and some people may just completely blast me for this, I completely just glossed over this interesting little continuity glitch about uh, the the angels and what immobilizes them because the, the suspense was, was so well crafted. I just glossed over it. That does not excuse this little uh, inconsistency, however. And I do think that it's something that needs to be addressed. So uh, we also have, uh, we get some revelations about river. Um, she is apparently a big shock there, uh, a murderer of a very good man. Lots of people think is a hero. I'm not claiming that as a hundred percent hit just yet, but but I think I think I can take that as I can take that one as a hit. Well, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure you can. I I've been uh, conversing with some of my friends who live in the UK, and without me having to say anything, they all came to the exact same conclusion. So I think it's a safe bet as to who she was talking about or I who also she killed. Think that they, they made a huge point about time being rewritten, which means that all bets are off. She exactly. did murder the doctor, but time could be completely rewritten, and then and, and then she didn't. And so it, it, it may never come to pass. And, I, and also notice that you know she, she did mention when they were hauling her away that uh, maybe I did enough this time to get a pardon. And we know that she's already given him a spoiler that she'll be there at the Pandorica, which is going to be the the season finale, which if you looked at the base code time of the universe, is the date that the episode airs in England, the 13th episode. 
uh, of this of this series and you know so presumably she's in custody in that one too and presumably she doesn't do enough in that one to get a pardon because she's still in prison this time i don't think that'll be the one where she commits the crime Oh, no. No, I, I think that's, you know, holding off. And I also kind of, you know, the, the church, you know, I, I thought that that was an interesting concept to bring in there. Um, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by uh, the history of, of religion and the church. It's a, it's a pet topic of mine. And so, you know, this doesn't seem out of phase to me. This is, you know, Knights Templar. I mean, these sorts of things come and go. Um, but, you know, we never get any answers. I mean, on whose authority uh, are they acting? Uh, are, are they the whole church? Are they an arm of the church? Is there some religious significance to the angels or, or perhaps to the doctor? I mean, he might be a minor, he might be a minor deity to them, for all we know. Um, you know, it, and they didn't do anything with them. I mean, they were nothing more than cannon fodder. In this episode, and so I'm wondering if they will also be in custody of River in the next episode that she shows up, and if there'll be more associated with him. But I, I didn't really, I didn't really see anything there that uh, that gave me a hint one way or the other. Mm, no, me neither. Got any observations about River? Uh, well, pretty much everything that you had just said. Uh, the only thing that I would go back on uh, that, that I would uh, uh, discuss again is the whole idea as to when she historically kills the doctor. I I always play back in my mind something she says when she meets the doctor in Silence of the Library, and even though he, sweetie, no, <laughs> she, she no, uh, she says you're young. Yeah, even though. Uh, David Tennant's doctor kept saying, no, I'm not. I'm very old. And she says, oh, no, you are so young. So from the time she kills him, or, or, well, from her point of view, from the time she kills him to the time that she finally dies, there's a long time of the doctor's life. It's a long time of the doctor. Exactly. It's a long time of the doctor's life. So it could mean a whole heck of a lot of things. Uh, I've always kind of uh, suggested that uh, somehow the doctor's going to get more regenerations, and I'm only saying that from a from a practical standpoint as as far as uh, storytelling goes. I mean, you, you've got a winning franchise; you don't exactly want to kill him off after a couple more actors, and you know that be the end of it. Twelve regenerations was was a was a silly plot idea, but you know they gave the master more regenerations uh, in the Time War. And the doctor fought in the time war. For all we know, they've already given him, you know, twelve more when he was doctor number eight or nine. So, very possible. Nothing was ever said of that. We've only been acting under the assumption, uh, based on uh, past uh, past series, that uh, there were just a limited number of regenerations. So it's very possible he may have a, a huge deal more. So I guess that's something we just have to wait and see. Well, I guess that's the cue for me to go in and try to come up with uh, with with what I'm perhaps seeing here, and 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 I'm going to take my prediction that I'm thinking perhaps that the Grand Moff has set us up brilliantly, and either that or he's leaving so many pieces loose that aren't going anywhere that I'd be I'd be genuinely disappointed. But 
but let me just take a couple of pieces here. Uh, well, I'll start with, with just making a comment about uh, uh, the the theme and the crack as it's you know been showing up in every episode. But in uh, the second and third episode, the Doctor and Amy never saw it, and that's very much like uh, like Bad Wolf did throughout the first series or the the Torchwood references. I never liked that, and the reason I don't like it is it's kind of a it's kind of a wink and a giggle to the audience. But it if the if the protagonists in the story do not see it and don't know about it, then it doesn't drive the story. It's like the pineapple in every episode of Psych. It's just there to see if you can catch it, but it doesn't. It doesn't advance the narrative, and so I, I was very disappointed that the crack keeps showing up. And then I was I, I was extremely happy that it showed up in this episode in the way that it did, because the Doctor now knows about it. It is part of the story. He can take some effort to figure it out. You know, it 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 draw it's going to drive some of what he's doing, and so it's it's now actually been woven into the story properly, and so I'm very happy about that, um, and and that got me thinking. I said, you know, maybe we are we are missing lots of weird things. We now know Amy's from 2010. We know from the first episode that her boyfriend's badge at the hospital says it was issued in 1990. I mean, they took trouble to go down and show you that shot. He hasn't been working in a hospital 20 years. You know, something's wrong there. And we have people forgetting things. But we have a, we also have a, a things like this. Try to remember this phrase from episode one, from the uh, Prisoner Zero. The doctor and the TARDIS doesn't know. Remember? And then they were kind of chanting that. They were, they were kind of funny. He doesn't know about the crack. And it, it's not a weird phrase, the doctor and the TARDIS doesn't know. I mean, what does that mean? Why would the TARDIS notice? What, you know, the doctor with the TARDIS, the, you know, the famous doctor, but, but it's a very precise, odd phrase. And I just thought, well, Prisoner Zero is not human. They talk funny. But then that's what Angel Bob said. The doctor and the TARDIS hasn't noticed in this episode when they're talking about the crack. Again, very odd turn of phrase. I think clearly significant. So, one, like I said, I'm wondering if trying to terrorize the people was in some way helping to accelerate this crack. That that the crack obviously has, it's not just Amy, it's the doctor that is somehow involved in this the crack. And that, that they're doing this entirely to accelerate the the process. What I'm thinking is that we may be getting pieces of a, a real story arc that that are very small pieces that are being put out there that aren't beating us over the head like Bad Wolf. They, that maybe they just put the crack in the first couple of episodes as kind of a red herring. I mean, not saying that the crack isn't important, but in other words, keep showing it up on the whale and on the on the wall and whatnot as a kind of like, remember Bad Wolf? Here you go, and uh, you know, almost like flipping the finger off at it. And then there are other pieces there that we're not seeing, like them, the phrasing of the Doctor and the TARDIS. And, uh, and, and, and then there's a continuity problem in this episode. And it could be nothing more than a continuity problem. And, and you'll see people on the Internet both ways. I, at first I thought they were crazy, but the more I think about it, the more it's beginning to make sense to me. And that is, when the Doctor and River and the Bishop leave, and they leave Amy behind... 
right? And, and it, it, for all the appearances, they walk out and they leave. And then suddenly you cut to a real close shot of Amy's hands, and the doctor comes back and he puts his hands on her, and, you know, he gives her a kiss, and he, and he tells her, you know, you've got to remember what I told you when you were seven. And she's like, I don't know what that is. No, no, it's important. You've got to remember. Well, that went nowhere. And it's very odd. It could have been a pickup shot, which is, in, in production terms, that's a shot where you come back and you shoot it later because something went wrong and, and you know, when, with a recording or you forgot to do it or, or something like that, which could explain the kind of odd framing. But if you pay close attention, the doctor's wearing his jacket in that shot. And, uh, of course, he's lost his jacket at that point completely. And so the question is, is that our doctor? Or is that the doctor from another point in time coming back to tell Amy that there's something important to remember? Because this, this whole thing is about memory. People are forgetting things. People forget the bond. People forget uh, even, even the episode about the whale. There's a, there's a, a subtext theme about people forgetting and I, I just, I, I'm just wondering if, if these are just little, little pieces that are out there that are tantalizingly uh, trying to give us something that when it comes all together, we'll slap our heads and go, oh, brilliant. What do you think? Well, I think you're pretty much, you're, you're definitely onto something. I had, I had not caught the the bit where when when the doctor puts his uh, for example when he when he comes back to Amy and tells her to remember uh, you're right that was a rather odd scene and I did find it very peculiar that it was just thrown out there for no apparent reason but now that you mention it the fact that he had his jacket on that's that's a big continuity error I don't think they would have allowed that. Uh, the, they, they've been pretty good in the past, uh, or at least, especially since the show's come back. They've been pretty good about such such errors not taking place. So I think you're really onto something. This could be like some sort of strange time collision that's going on here, and the Doctor is clearly at the center of it. Peter Davison's coming back. No? Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. He's the only one that can still fit in the clothes. Yeah, well, barely. <laughs> Only a little bit. Uh, the one line, however, and you're right, this is a rather peculiar line that we did hear twice uh, when they were when they regard to the Doctor and the TARDIS. Now, it has been suggested, uh, especially during the uh, Eccleston period, that the, the TARDIS was alive somehow. Mm-hmm. It did have some kind of a consciousness. And that was reiterated in the most subtle of ways – in uh, at the very end of um, uh, the second part of uh, Silence of the Library, when the Doctor snaps his fingers, a TARDIS opens. I, re- I realize that sounds like such a trivial thing, but when you start to get this, uh, when you start to look at it, especially in light of these lines that have been thrown out, there's clearly a symbiosis that that exists between the Doctor and the TARDIS. I mean, the Doctor regenerates, the TARDIS regenerates as well. And it's not just simply another desktop screen or a desktop theme, uh, as Stephen Moffat had pointed out in a previous, in a oh, previous yeah. special. So I, there's, there's, there's something. Yeah, I, I think you're right. The, the crack is not 
the center the center of all of this, but it is clearly a huge symptom of something much bigger that is going on here. I and they're showing it, us it, different symptoms. There are other symptoms that we're seeing, and and it's just kind of they're just which is them like, out there. Yeah. Which is again uh, a much better way of telling an overall story arc. If that is indeed what's going on here, it's a much better way of doing it than what uh, Russell Davies has done in the past, where he just beats you over the head with the bad wolf, bad wolf, bad wolf, and it it, it was almost an, uh, insulting to the intelligence. So for for uh, the Grand Moff to lay these it's it's like looking at a giant puzzle and he's just laying out the border of the puzzle right now and he's you know within an episode or two he's going to start to fill in the middle pieces uh, I, I think you're right i think this is clearly uh something much bigger than than any of us have ever expected and i i'm kind of can't wait to see where this is all headed and it, will it will it resolve at the end of this season, or is, or is this something so massive that he wants to take it into the next year? Well, I hope not. Well, I'll, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you lead the way. Uh, tell me what you thought of the uh, kissy kissy scene there at the end. Ick poo. <laughs> hated it. Absolutely hated it. But the one great thing about it is that the doctor didn't care for it either. I, I mean, he found it highly inappropriate too, and at least. That made me feel uh, it, it. It took some of the sting out of it, but I. Anytime I see companion getting all kind of kissy, comfy, cozy with the doctor, I, I have I have to take a step back and say, no, this doesn't feel right for me. I I I was I appreciated the scene simply because I think there's you know the whole Rose and Martha and and whatnot thing where there is this uh, implication or not even an implication uh, that. There is a romance there between the two of them. And so you have these questions as to how far a romance between the companion and the doctor could go. And I think we've got it that this episode clearly delineates that. It's not going to be a physical thing. The doctor looks at these people. I think the doctor, particularly this doctor, looks at them as students almost or wards. I think this is why he calls her Pond. I mean, there's a very professorial Heir to him, and I mean that's a that's a classic British schoolmaster sort of way of addressing students. You know, last name, and 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 we also know that it's very common for students to get a crush on their professors. You know, that's that's a that's a thing that happens, and obviously, in in this world, and and rightly so, teachers should not abuse that. Uh, that power they have them, but you know, I think it's perfectly natural for Amy to react that way up to a point. You know, maybe not on her wedding night, but I mean, I I can see how somebody would become infatuated uh, as a companion with a doctor. But that the doctor is the one that has to maintain the level head and say, you know, you're a human and you're really young. Well, I I would have to agree with that. I think it I think it was just, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, a gag that was thrown into this episode. I think a lot of people were kind of put off by the romantic overtones that we had seen, especially during the David Tennant series. Again, that was the only only flaw that I that I could really pick out in terms of characterizations for that time. 
I mean, we kept seeing it not so much with Donna Noble, but with Martha and obviously, especially with Rose, this whole infatuation thing. Well, even Jack, even Captain Jack. <laughs> I mean, there was even some some with him. Uh, I, I think uh, Stephen has Stephen Moffat has decided that this is not an appropriate thing. I, I think he kind of looks as the, at the Doctor and sort of in the same way that we do, that he's not above it, but that he's he just sees himself as this elder statesman type of role, and that there's a certain uh, decorum that must be followed whenever you have a companion, much like, as you said, the teacher-student relationship. So I, I think Stephen just kind of threw that in there as a gag to to set that uh, right out there. Because I'm sure a lot of people were wondering, oh, will anything happen between the, uh, between the doctor and Amy? And only because uh, the actors are so close in age. Uh, I mean, they look like they could be a really cute couple on maybe Coronation Street or something. Well, that's pretty much it for us tonight. Um, remember, you can contact us at uh, feedback at fusionpatrol.com or follow us on Twitter at Fusion Patrol. That's all one word. Uh, We'd love to hear feedback from you. And until next time, this is Eugene. And this is Ben. Good night. Or good day. Good night. Whatever time it happens to be for you. Fusion Patrol is produced by Lone Locust Productions. You can contact us at feedback at fusionpatrol.com. Our theme music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf.